You're listening to Solving Climate Naturally. Join us as we unpack nature's role in tackling climate change and talk to the people leading the way. Welcome to Solving Climate Naturally, where we speak with experts and leaders at the cutting edge of natural climate solutions to help demystify this growing field. I'm your host, Kate. We're trying two new things today. First, it's just me. And second, we're doing this recording live. Because we started this podcast during the pandemic, we actually haven't recorded any other episodes live yet, but wanted to take advantage of a unique opportunity. I'm here in Kinshasa, the capital of Democratic Republic of the Congo, with Dominique Picaba, founder and executive director of Strong Roots Congo. We're sitting outside at a restaurant by a pool, so if there's a little bit of background noise, that's why, but we'll, we'll work through it. Dominic was born in the area that is now the Kahuzi Biega National Park. He's the founder and executive director of Strong Roots Congo, a grassroots conservation and sustainable development organization operating in the Eastern Democratic Republic of the Congo that backs initiatives like connecting community forests to link great ape habitats between protected areas. He holds a degree in rural development with specialization in regional planning and a master's from the Yale School of Forestry. Dom, welcome to Solving Climate Naturally. Thank you very much. <laughs> Wonderful. So I think we'll start in the usual fashion, which is to tell us about your journey. How did you uh, become interested in natural climate solutions or, or conservation in general? And what brought you to where you are today? Thank you very much. You've already said it. I was born in the area, which is a Kawuzbiga National Park today, which I consider it as a forest. Some call it National Park, but for me it's a forest because that's where my ancestors lie. Which means that I've observed all the issues we are facing today, how this forest has changed, how communities around it have changed. And um, I was only 20 years old when I co-founded our first conservation organization around Spork with the goal of resolving the conflicts uh, which the communities were facing with the park managers. So from my childhood, maybe around two or three years old, my grandmother took me out of my parents and I lived with her my whole life until she passed away in 2012, if I remember. And uh, she used to take me in this forest, showing me how they lived, where they lived in the forest. Of course, we were getting there secretly because it was already a national park and she was not allowed to enter the park anymore. Fortunately, while taking me in the forest and seeing the forest, she was creating this love in me of this forest. And also seeing wildlife coming outside of this forest and feeding on our crops in our farms, at our homes, because we had the chance to live at the age of this forest, where they were kicked out of this forest when it became a national park. I think this developed the big love of uh, forests and wildlife, and I'm not sure I would be able to do something different than what I'm doing today. And uh, being at the age of the forest, and seeing that the whole year we could produce we could produce crops which cannot happen in areas which are far away from the forest. So I try understanding how the forest was having an impact on agriculture and on our survival around the Kahuzibiga National Park. And my mother 
did farming his whole life, which means that I was observing all the changes which could appear in agricultural campaign and so on until now. So I'd say that from my childhood, living on the forest and working for the forest, I've been observing this and it becomes impossible almost to get out of it because this is kind of normal life that I'm doing until today. <laughs> Amazing. And I, I want to ask about your, your work specifically with Strong Roots Congo and what you're working on. But maybe first we can back up just a, a little bit and uh, talk to listeners about why why the Congo. Why should people be, be paying attention to this? And especially, you know, most of our listeners are, are coming at this from the context of climate change. There are very good reasons and several of them. One is the high endemism of the DRC. What is endemism? Endemism means that these are species which live only in DRC. They are not found anywhere else except in DRC. So if they are gone in DRC, they are gone forever. So let's talk about great apes themselves, for example. DRC counts three out of the four existing known great ape species. So we have the gorillas, we have the chimpanzees, and we have the bonobos. Let's talk about gorillas, for example. There are also four subspecies of gorillas. And GRC, again, counts three out of the four subspecies of gorillas. And one of them, the one I work with, is an endemic for our region, the Eastern Lowland gorillas. And the bonobo, which is one of these three um, great ape species is also endemic for DRC. So, and just talking about great apes, look at trees, look at other species, amphibians and, and others, okapi and so on. So you see that DRC has the highest rate of endemism as I can imagine across the globe. That's one. Second, we, we are talking about the Congo Basin forests, which is the second largest tropical forest worldwide. But DRC alone counts more than 80% of the Congo Basin Forest. In 10 countries, DRC alone is counting this huge amount of forest. And that we are talking about more than 1 million square kilometers of forest, which actually covers about 50% of the national territory. So again, not paying attention to what is happening in DRC today is actually ignoring what can happen for the whole Africa and the whole humanity. So that's why DRC, not only for species, but also for the forests, but also for all the communities living there as indigenous peoples, local communities. It's a combination of all the things which makes DRC a focal point when we talk about climate change. And what are some of the challenges around deforestation? I mean, the, the recent reports around the Amazon are showing that it's no longer the carbon sink that it used to be, Indonesia is no longer, and, and that actually Congo Basin is the only remaining strong carbon sink. But I know there's deforestation happening, there, there are risks. Exactly. And, and uh, I, I come from the eastern part of the country where we've been going through this unstable political situation where we've had all these successive wars. This has affected the forest management and, and, and governance systems, but also 
the region where I come from is very rich in minerals and other natural resources, which also makes it very, very complicated. It's international economics, international politics, all that around that region. That's the first challenge we have. The second challenge as a conservationist is the way we consider and we see and we make conservation. I think the way it came to us, it came in the wrong way. Because there is an aspect, particularly the cultural aspect, was not considered by the people who brought, in bracket, conservation to Africa, to Africans. They didn't understand that Africans were doing conservation, where they used their traditional knowledge and traditional practices to maintain biodiversity, you know? And some of those were, for example, for doing conservation, communities have to be kicked out of their traditional lands. I do not believe that communities are enemies of conservation. We should consider communities as element of, of nature, as biodiversity. They are part of it. So taking them out of it, it doesn't help. It's only because people working with us, they do not understand how cultural aspects can be heavy on conservation initiatives. Those are some of the challenges we are facing. But also, when you are working with big organizations which do not really understand and look at community, they are successful when they've run a very successful fundraising campaign. We've made two million this year. We've made 10 million this year. That's not a parameter to assess conservation success. A lot of your work centers around the community forest. Can you talk about what, what is like what is the process in the DRC for a community getting those land rights? Why does that matter? What are the challenges? Uh, and what, what is the role that your team is playing? I think another thing which complicates people coming in DRC is the duality in land rights. Because legally, we agree that communities can have right on the land from customary rights. And secondly, they can have it from the written right. You know? <laughs> Both are legal. We are facing this issue of telling people that you have a customary right on this land, but you, have, you don't have the legal right on this land. And make confusion, because not all communities in the forest, in the villages and so on, really understand the written right. They say, this is our land, this is our ancestral land. Why do we need another paper for it? I'd say from 2010, we've been lobbying the government of DRC to really put in place a law which could allow communities to have legal titles with papers. And it's only in 2014 where the government of DRC issued a law which actually allows communities to have the right of governance management of the traditional lands. Again, a community cannot have more than 50,000 hectares on their lands. It's already something. It's a beginning. But I think that when we do the evaluation, I think in the couple of couple years to come, we'll do the evaluation of this whole process and program in DRC. We're going to show that probably 50,000 is not enough. For a community, for example, which has more thousands of, of hectares, 
However, we have this law and there is a process where we go through. Right now, we are securing about 600,000 hectares of community forests. We are working with seven chiefdoms. We are developing an ecological corridor between Kahuzibiega National Park and Itombo Nature Reserve, not only for communities' land tenure, securing the traditional lands right, but also rehabilitating great apes habitat so that the remaining population of great apes living on these patches of, of forest on the landscape can reunite again and actually reproduce and hopefully increase the numbers of great apes, which has decreased at 77% the last 25 years. So we've lost uh, a lot of gorillas and chimpanzees and other species, elephants, because of war, because of illegal mining and so on. But what can we do? We are working with communities today and ensure that we can have this landscape restored and interconnecting again the remaining population wherever they are on the landscape to ensure that these populations can come back again at good numbers. I know we've talked about how do you fund conservation, how do you keep these projects going over time with continuity. would love to hear your thoughts around the role of climate finance and carbon markets and other market-based solutions that are being discussed today. You know, I had a chance to study in a good university outside my country and have this privilege to meet people, experts, good professors, the highest technology I can imagine worldwide and so on. And it's not the same case for my fellows in the villages, in the region, in the country, you know. What I'm trying to say here is how do we get the information about natural capital, for example, to preserve this forest? It's not just that, but also how complicated is it, it is for us to understand it, which means that I totally understand that this mechanism are very, very important and the only lasting and sustainable funding way I know which can help communities to really implement their conservation management plans for the community forest. Unfortunately, do we have the capacities to understand it? Who can explain that in community words so that we can really understand how it works, what we can do, which are the requirements, those kind of things. I think I'd ask people to just make these things easier for communities to understand and to engage. I'm happy with some organizations which are actually even shortening today the uh, applications for funding because of indigenous people and local communities. I appreciate that so very much. And some are near terror, for example, working with indigenous people. The applications found that they are shortened and the, the communities can really respond without huge questionnaire and so on and so on. I think these are very, very important. But in my country, in DRC, we still need to understand that. Among challenges is all the rampant poverty, is illegal mining, all companies come in here and they're exploiting minerals, natural resources without leaving anything in communities. Corruption, you know, this weak governance systems in our politicians and so on. I mean, all those are impending 
communities to access the right information, to access the right mechanism to help preserve their forests naturally. If it was for business, not ju- not only grants, I think it, it, it not only provides funding to communities, but also skills and also practical skills where they can make money themselves to fund anything they want to do in their villages. This is much more sustainable, but it's not understood, it's not known. And we need this space where communities can really learn and engage. Can you talk about what a community conservation plan would look like concretely? I know when we talked yesterday, we were discussing regenerative agriculture practices and ways to change farming so you're not needing to rely on slash and burn. But can you just very concretely, you know, if, if, because I think a lot of people are thinking about if you're providing funding for this conservation program with this particular climate outcome, where is that money actually going? What are the activities that are needed to, to produce that outcome? I'm not sure I'll be able to explain that in a few words because to make these plans, we have to go through different steps. For example, we have to run socioeconomic studies to understand how much communities rely on this forest, which are their other uh, means of subsistence, what else they can do, studying their markets, their local markets of crops or any other things. We have to run some biological surveys to understand where are species concentrated on the landscape, how are they distributed on the landscape. Then we come up with the land use planning. So we say, this is the landscape, this is the forest, but here we can do agriculture. Here we can do strict conservation so nobody can disturb here because that's where species are making their maternity, for example, or this is a high concentration of species here. Here we can do agroforestry and so on. So we try to do some microzoning on the forest to really determine areas of, of interventions. And coming back to the question, it means that the, the, the conservation management plan is a document which has different projects in it, and within each project, different activities. So depending how funds are available, we can say this project should have the highest priority than this one. So this first and second, and if we can do two or three at the same time, that would be okay. So it's a number of projects, maybe between one and four projects, dividing different activities, which when they are put together, they consolidate the sustainable conservation of that forest, which means that it's going to impact the cultural aspect, the economic aspect, and the social aspect of the communities together, because there is no one way we can do it. We can say, okay, we've built a school and that's it. It's good, but how children are going to go to school if they're hungry, you know? So we have to look at some holistic interventions to ensure that we can touch on some of the highest needs of communities in the villages. We cannot resolve everything as well because it's not possible to resolve the problems of the communities. But you can make a big difference if you really are able to do a good need assessment to ensure that you've identified the, the priority of them and start by there.
What I love about this is that it demonstrates that principle of not coming with this top-down plan, but actually surfacing the solutions from people who know it best, from people who know the details of the land, whether it's the agricultural productivity here or where the animals are going for different parts of their life cycle. Yeah, um, It makes a lot of sense. I mean, I, I wonder if you could just give the example from the area you mentioned, the, the corridor between the two parks where you're working, yeah. what some of those top three priorities might be for that particular area. I think first is energy. We are losing a lot of the forest because of energy. We are talking here about a community where the population growth is 4% every year, which means that every year there is an increase of demand of natural resources, water, food, land, and so on. So deforestation is part of that. And 98%, 0.6% fuel comes only from wood in that increase of population. Energy is a big challenge for people. And that's where I think solar systems, gas, any other alternatives for energy in these regions is a priority. That's one. Second, it's about the houses. So they, they build, those are small houses, small huts in forest, but they do it every six months. They have to cut trees and leaves and build something, and every six months they destroy it, they build a new one, and so on and so on. But they have good soil there, which can make them bricks locally. So if they can just change their way of making their houses, in those forests, they can use the soil they have and make some bricks. Bricks can last between five and 10 years. Even if you put leaves on the top and within five years, the forest will be calming down. It's not being disturbed that way. Another thing I'd see, because by this demographic explosion, is creating agglomeration around the forest. We have big rivers through the forest where we can produce electricity. Just even one small dam, making it correctly without pollution and so on, using science and good technology to really ensure that we can produce electricity for those agglomerations across the forest. That will reduce sensibly the uh, pace of deforestation on this region on a daily basis. Agriculture is a big thing. We need to provide good techniques of intensification without rejecting the traditional knowledge they have in agricultural systems, but also adding that to anything we can find to really ensure that agriculture is sustainable. Because this is done on a daily basis, the food is every day, and so on. So these are the things I can see just on my first glance like this. <laughs> we talked a little bit about carbon markets and you know how you see that opportunity. Could you just quickly share your thoughts? <laughs> definitely yes, definitely yes, because again, this is something which goes between 10 and 30 years. And if that funding can be available at that time to support communities to implement this kind of priorities they have on these landscapes, I don't see another way to do it. We've been doing grants 
which is very good as well because they have helped us to reach where we are today. But to sustaining this funding for communities, I think carbon could be uh, a big and very good opportunity. All right. One question that we asked to all of our guests is, if you had a magic wand, what would you change to scale natural climate solutions in the DRC? I may not have the right answer to that because it's a complex question. And again, depends from a region to another region. But something I can see if I cross the whole DRC is landscape restoration. So if we are able to really ensure that we can define a landscape and set approaches to restore it in a proper way where we are considering all the traditional knowledge and practices of communities, using technologies and science together with that, I think that would be the best thing to do for the forest in DRC. Who do you admire? Who do you think is doing some of the most exciting work in this space, whether in DRC or in, in other countries? Whoever is considering that communities can provide a big contribution for climate change and for biodiversity conservation. I know there are so many who are doing this. Anybody doing that? Claps of hands. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. All right, this brings us to the, the last part of the conversation, which is the lightning round. So very, very quick questions to, to round this off. The first one is, what is your favorite carbon sink? Tropical forest. Ah, obviously. <laughs> uh, the favorite book that you've read this past year? Dark Money of Jane Mayer. It's something I loved so much because the book shows how politicians and other people uh, are getting rich on the blood of others. And I imagine the situation in my country where some people became rich because others are dying. It goes also across social justice and people thinking that they are more human than others, which I don't like. So I loved so much the book. <laughs> What's been your favorite COVID quarantine activity and how has COVID been here? Yes, we've been in lockdowns many times. And uh, what have I... New, new I... hobbies? <laughs> Whether or not in quarantine. Eating. <laughs> you, you and the rest of the world, yeah. <laughs> eating much and, uh, of course, being on a computer and reading, reading, eating, but without moving, it was not easy. <laughs> <laughs> what keeps you up at night? I think my, I don't know if I, that's a word in English, but if I'm conceiving things, ideas, I do that at night. In the day like this, I'm like a small chimpanzee everywhere, blah, mm. blah, 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 blah. In the night, I concentrate myself. Mm. That's where the inspiration comes to me. The inspiration. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what are you looking forward to in the rest of the year, the last, last quarter? Securing about 14 titles for community forests on the corridor. And I'm hoping that happens before December. I cross fingers. <laughs> amazing, amazing. Those are more, more ambitious goals than I have. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining. This is such a fun so conversation. Much. Thank and, you very uh, much, too. <laughs> Thank you for joining today's episode of Solving Climate Naturally. Check out our website, solvingclimatenaturally.com, to see this episode's show notes, 
explore resources, and learn about upcoming episodes. Let us know what you think by connecting with us via email or Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. See you next time.